Our second reading this morning is Matthew 9, 35 to 10, 15. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his, weight, his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day, on the day of judgment, than for that town. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Let's pray. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray that you would bury this treasure of the gospel deeply within our hearts, that we might believe that you are behind and behind us and before us, working through us to accomplish good purposes for the glory of your name. So inspire us today by the working of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's good to be with you all again. Uh, I have great love for 
uh, your pastor and his family and for uh, many people in the congregation whom uh, we've had the privilege to know through either through Emmanuel or through other means. Uh, it's always a great delight to be with you. Uh, I'm going to share my screen, hopefully, see if this uh, works, uh, because I'll be re referring to a number of passages of Scripture today, and for that reason, I want to uh, keep these in front of you, so hopefully this will not be too distracting. Perhaps the best movie I've seen in the last 12 months is the amazing film that came out around Christmas time, 1917. Now, if you haven't seen it, no worries. I'm not going to spoil anything for you. I'll only tell you what you would know if you happen to see a trailer for it. Uh, it's a movie about World War I. You can tell from the picture this is a war movie. Uh, and that war was characterized by the gruesome and bloody trench warfare that occurred at the border between Germany and France. It really was a brutal conflict, uh, and in many ways there were no winners to that war. In the movie, two young British soldiers are given the responsibility of carrying a message to another battalion. Uh, the message was to tell the other battalion, don't go forward with your attack. We realize it's a trap. And if you go, you will be left defenseless and all 1600 soldiers will die. That's the message these two soldiers are given to carry. But to carry it, they have to leave their foxhole, go through the no man's land between the foxholes, go across the enemy's foxholes all the way to the other British battalion. The movie is shot uh, as if it were uh, one camera following the action. It never switches to this view, to that view or whatever. It's like there's one single shot and you're following it from beginning to end which gives a kind of breathless quality to the movie. These two are followed through those foxholes, through the enemy line, and the whole time you're thinking, they are on an impossible mission in the midst of incredible suffering. And I wonder if that movie was meant not just to be a history of what has happened, but a sort of prophecy of what would happen this year because i very much feel it and no doubt you feel that we are like those two young soldiers with an impossible mission in the face of immeasurable suffering the year began like 1998 with the cloud of uh, impeachment hanging over the american president then it seemed to turn into 1917 with a global pandemic threatening to kill millions and now it's turned into 1968, the year of much racial tension and urban protest over the brutal and horrendous murder, not just of George Floyd, but also Breonna Taylor and also Ahmaud Arbery and even Friday night in Atlanta again. So much suffering. And here we are as the church called to our mission <clears throat> in the midst of so much suffering and, and, it, and it does feel a little bit like one pastor said years ago, that like, like we're, we're, we're storming the gates of hell with squirt guns, right? Like what, in the face of so much suffering, what do we have that is of serious use for all that's going on around us? 
what we can do, marching and protests and sewing masks and maintaining social distance and, and even having church over Zoom for crying out loud. I mean, all of it seems so little compared to the suffering that's going on. My friends, the Lord knows where we are. He has called us to this moment. And he knows it not only as a CEO from his perch in heaven. Jesus took on flesh to experience what we experience. And he experienced it in our gospel for today. For Jesus looked out on those crowds and saw that they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were harassed and helpless. They were oppressed, beaten up, and left with no one to help. And that metaphor of being like sheep without a shepherd, that, that you don't need to be a follower of Jesus to, to know that that is a dominant image in Scripture, this image of a shepherd, perhaps uh, most uh, best known in the 23rd Psalm written by the shepherd king, David. But the image of, of God tending his people as uh, a, a shepherd tending his sheep goes far, far back beyond even the great King David. Towards the end of his life, Moses prayed that God would raise up a leader who would replace him so that the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Then, that's about 400 years, or two to 400 years before David. And then, after David's reign, in 1 Kings, we find that what Moses feared would happen, in fact, did happen during the reign of the evil king Ahab. We find there the prophet Micaiah addressing the king, saying, I saw all Israel scattered on the hills like sheep without a shepherd. He's indicting the king for his, for his terrible rule of God's people. And then around the time of the Babylonian exile, the prophet Ezekiel announced a message from the Lord against the shepherds of Israel. He said, you've not strengthened the weak, you've not healed the sick, you've not bound up the injured, you've not brought back the strays or searched for the lost, you've ruled them harshly and brutally, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And then after the Babylonian exile, the prophet Zechariah says that things have gotten no better. He tells us that the idols speak deceitfully, the, the diviners see visions that lie, they tell dreams that are false, they give comfort in vain, therefore the people wander like sheep, oppressed for lack of a shepherd. And God adds to this, my anger burns against the shepherds, and I will punish the leaders. And now for the first time, there's this promise, the Lord will care for his flock. And when Matthew says that Jesus saw the crowds as sheep without a shepherd, he's indicating for us that this prophecy of Zechariah is coming to fulfillment, that the Lord is tending to his flock. But what exactly does that imagery mean? What, what does it point to when Matthew and these other prophets and writers say that uh, the people are like sheep without a shepherd? Well, it means at least three things. Most obviously, perhaps, is physical suffering. For this is connected directly to Jesus's healing ministry, where he healed every disease and every affliction, and he saw these crowds of the sick, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. This is not the way it was meant to be. 
Human beings were created to live, not die. God created the world good. And it is only by sin that death has entered into the world. And by extension, aging and illness and viruses. Jesus looked at them and felt compassion for them in their physical suffering. It's reminiscent, is it not, of the 11th chapter of John's gospel, where Jesus, at the tomb of Lazarus, wept. But there's a second element here to their being like sheep without a shepherd, and that is political instability. The, the glory days of David and Solomon, by, by Jesus' time, those glory days are now a millennium ago, a thousand years in the rearview mirror. What was once a glorious kingdom is now under the heel of the Roman emperor. And this political instability is evident even in the 12 that Jesus chose. Did you notice this uh, in, in the beginning of chapter 10 in that gospel reading? Among the apostles, we find Matthew, Matthew, the writer of this book, this gospel that we're studying this morning, Matthew identifies himself as the tax collector, the publican. Now it goes beyond the dread that we have of an IRS agent. For these publicans were ethnically Jewish, but they were in the employ of Rome, collecting taxes from Jewish people to send to Rome and collecting a little bit extra to pad their own pockets. In the eyes of the Jewish nation, the publicans were sellouts. And with him is Simon, the zealot. Now, that is not saying that Simon was really enthusiastic, right? Like he had, you know, team, team signs on his Zoom calls because he just really, really loved them. He was a big fan. No, this was, this was, a, this was a political party. The zealots were Jews who sought to overthrow the Roman Empire and take back their Jewish nation. So you have a sellout and you have a revolutionary right in the 12. The political instability is right there in the apostles. And thirdly, and most tragically, you have religious oppression. And perhaps this is the key point, especially in the context of the Hebrew scriptures. The religious authorities were not relieving the poor. They were too busy building their own kingdom on the backs of the poor, cozying up to power. They didn't care about mercy. They just wanted everybody to keep all the rules. They used the word of God to oppress the people of God. It's often been said and it is true that Jesus speaks more often about hell than he does about heaven. But if you pay close attention when Jesus is talking about hell, pay close attention to whom he is speaking. Because more often than not, he is not speaking to the irreligious, to the prostitutes, to the drunkards. He's talking to religious leaders. So they were like sheep without a shepherd. And therefore they were harassed and helpless. And friends, does this not sound like the world that God has called us to live in? Does this not sound like our day and age? I'm sure at any point in my 43 years, I could have preached these things. I could have said, 
don't you see the religious oppression in the world and the political instability and the physical suffering? And that, and that would have been true at any point in my 43 years, but never have all three of these been raised to the pitch and intensity that it is right now, at least not in my life. A dear friend of mine pastors in the Bronx, and at last count, they've lost 13 people to the coronavirus. Many of those people, their remains uh, were not given the dignity of a proper funeral because of fear of contagion. And the suffering continues for those families who have had to endure that. I, I attended a funeral this week for a member of the church I used to pastor on the west side. He was an active member until about five years ago when dementia forced to move to a nursing home. And there were about eight to 10 of us gathered there for his funeral. I don't know how large, how many people would have come, but certainly more, but really more were not allowed, even at the cemetery for an open air graveside. I mean, the suffering that we're experiencing has been immense. And the political instability we're experiencing right now is, I mean, if, if it weren't true, it, it'd be laughable. And the religious oppression continues, the refusal to acknowledge serious injustices, the sheer inconsistency of the Christian witness in this moment is maddening. Harassed and helpless, so much suffering. Friends, there is good news. And the good news is what I pointed to earlier, that Jesus took on flesh. Jesus, the eternal son of God, became incarnate so that he might not just be aware of suffering in some academic way that life is bad because sin entered into the world. No, he did not maintain a position or a vantage point of a distant observer. He became incarnate so that he might experience so much suffering, so that he might know what it is like to be harassed and helpless. We see this so beautifully in verse 36, where Jesus, when he saw the crowds, had compassion for them. This is a beautiful thing. Friends, in the face of physical suffering, in the face of political instability, in the face of religious oppression, Jesus doesn't just lower the boom. He doesn't just say, enough, you've messed up my good world. As one modern hymn writer puts it, God did not rip out the page. He could have. But instead, he looks on us and his heart breaks. The word for compassion there is a word in the original language that refers to like this area down here, your gut. It's like your gut is turned over. His insides were turned outside. Jesus entered our world and he had compassion and his compassion moved him to act. And friends, this is what I'm, I'm calling on you to focus on in the midst of so much suffering. I want you to focus on what Jesus does out of his compassion in the face of so much suffering, because here's where our hope will be. First, you find him teaching and preaching right there in verse 35. 
He is communicating to people that there is good news. In spite of all of these factors, there is good news. And it is the good news of the kingdom. The gospel, the good news of the kingdom. That is that the world that God has promised, this world of shalom, this world of wholeness, the world as it ought to be, that kingdom has come near because the king has come near. And friends, that's good news. Because in the message of the kingdom is the promise that all physical suffering will end. An ultimate relief to physical suffering has come near because the king has come near. An ultimate relief to political instability has come near because the king has come near. An ultimate relief to religious oppression has come near because the king has come near. So Jesus, out of compassion, taught, he spoke, and then with it, he healed. Now, this is not the ultimate healing because those who are healed of these sicknesses and diseases would later die. But they were, they were a harbinger. They were a sign. And do you see just how comprehensive his healing ministry was? He went throughout all the cities and all the villages healing every disease and every affliction. I have a feeling... If, if the apostle had had bold italics and underline, he would have used all three here because he just kept saying it so we would not miss the point. It's an all-inclusive ministry. And Jesus is saying, I am reversing the curse. I am proving that my announcement regarding the kingdom is true. Look at what I do. Look at my healing ministry. Who has authority like this? Only the king. Only the son of man from Daniel 7. Friends, out of his compassion, not only does Jesus preach and teach, and not only does he heal, but in chapter 10, verse 1, out of his compassion, he authorizes and sends others. There's a reason that the lectionary crosses a chapter break. It is because these are to be read together. This prayer that laborers would be sent together with Jesus, giving authority and then sending others. And friends, this is glorious. This is a glorious act of Jesus' compassion. By becoming incarnate, Jesus limits himself. By becoming incarnate, Jesus limits himself to being in one place at one time. He looks around and he sees so much need. He sees so much suffering. And as it were, he realizes he cannot cure every disease. He cannot be everywhere. He cannot preach everywhere because he is in one human body. So he picks 12 people. He calls these 12 disciples. He gives them, he shares his authority with them. And then in verse five, he sent them out all out of his compassion. Now, instead of one person who is preaching and teaching and healing, there are 13 people who are teaching and preaching and healing. See, do you see his compassion? Out of his compassion, he not only teaches and preaches and heals, but he sends more. But that's not the end of it. Because when he sends those 12 out, he warns them. He warns them that even though you are bringing good news to people, even though you are announcing the hope that everything sad will come untrue, 
And even though you are healing people's diseases, you may be rejected. Mind-boggling, isn't it? How could, how could someone be rejected for announcing good news and for healing people? But friends, what Jesus predicted about the 12 would become true for himself. Because after three years of teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, the religious oppressors and the political leaders said, enough! Enough! And they would reject him and subject him to the worst physical suffering human beings had devised, death on a cross. This one who spoke good, this one who gave good news, this one who gave life to others died. Of all people to be condemned as a criminal, why him? Friends, it's because he is the true shepherd of his people. <laughs> he is the shepherd of Psalm 23. And this Jesus, a few hours before his death, told his friends, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. You see, friends, the only way that the king could bring in his kingdom of shalom in a way that is just is for justice to be served. And on the cross, in his crucifixion, justice was served. As he bore in himself, in his body, on the tree, all the brokenness of the world. All the injustice he took on himself. You see, friends, the cross was more than just the worst physical suffering human beings had devised. It was Jesus undergoing the day of judgment on behalf of those who rejected him. The reason the day of judgment is tolerable for anyone, anyone, you or me, or anyone, the only reason it's bearable at all is that Jesus underwent the day of judgment for us. I know some of you are still thinking about that shepherd thing. Like, wait a second. If Jesus is the true shepherd of his people and, and he predicted his own death, well, doesn't that actually leave us where we started? Like, aren't we all then sheep without a shepherd? You know, it's interesting. In, in every other instance, if a shepherd dies, it means death for the sheep. Every time. If a wolf kills a shepherd, he's got free reign to that flock. But not in this case. Because when Jesus said that the good shepherd lays down his life, he followed it right up with, and I will take it up again. You see, friends, on the third day, Jesus walked out of that grave. And this is not some spiritual resurrection of Jesus, like the disciples, like discovering new meaning about, about who Jesus was. No, I mean the stone rolled away and his dead body began to breathe and he got up and he walked out. And by that resurrection, friends, Jesus vindicated everything he had said. He proved that everything sad will indeed come true because even death itself bends the knee to Jesus. 
He is king. He is Lord. And then what did he do next? After rising from the dead and being with his people for 40 days, we just celebrated it a couple of weeks ago. He ascended to his father and he said, I will not leave you as orphans because I will send my spirit on you. And friends, the spirit can do what Jesus cannot do. Sounds heretical, except Jesus said it. He said it would be to our advantage that that he would go away. How is that possible? It's because Jesus by becoming incarnate, is still in a physical body. He is God and man forever. So Jesus can still be in only one place at one time, but his spirit can be everywhere. And this same spirit God has sent, first on those apostles in the upper room on Pentecost and the others gathered there, he poured out his spirit on the apostles and recommissioned them, now not just to the lost sheep of Israel, though certainly including them, but for all the nations for Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth because the harvest is plentiful. It's everywhere. That's why he sent his spirit so that through the apostles and down through the generations, the gospel would continue to spread until the knowledge of the glory of God fills the earth like the waters cover the sea. And friends, in the midst of our confusion, And our anger over injustice, when we feel like marching and making signs that say Black Lives Matter and debating people on Facebook seems like such a little contribution. When it feels like building a relationship with a neighbor and trying to serve them day after day after day and trying to figure out how to get the gospel to them seems like so little. Friends, do you see, do you see where you fit in this story? Do you see where your acts of service fit into the story? Your presence, where you are, and your seemingly little acts, where you are, they are proof of the compassion of the incarnate Messiah. It's because he loves the people in your life that he put you where you are doing the things you're doing. Friends, that's why he sent you his spirit, to empower you for what you're doing right now. So yeah, we might feel like we have squirt guns storming the gates of hell. We might feel like two British soldiers doing something very risky, but there are 1,600 lives at stake, so we'll, we'll take another step. We're going to try to get this done. Friends, God is doing something far greater than you can see, something far deeper, something far richer. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is empowering you as you sew those masks and make those face shields, as you serve your neighbor and care for the elderly, as you make those statements and read those books and take steps to bring justice and shalom to those on the margins. You might not see it today, friends, but the Spirit is at work in you and through you. Because, friends, you're not just the recipient of compassion incarnate. You are proof of it. You are witness to it. So, friends, whatever good deeds God has prepared for you this week, take heart. Jesus loves you. And he loves the people in your life. That's why he put you there. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.